You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Let's open with prayer. Uh, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we ask um, a blessing on our time together, uh, knowing uh, that, our, that our time is limited, um, and, and, and these subjects and, and your gospel is large, and that we're grateful to gather one more time uh, this side of glory to, to discuss and try to discern your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So this is, this is it. This is the, the fourth in a, in a four-part series um, uh, trying to get at a, a really easy question, um, trying to get at this, this problem of, of identity um, politics. And we've covered a lot of ground, um, and, and and I think it was necessary to go to a fourth, uh, just as a kind of wrap up on, on the material. So if, if you haven't been here, you're going to get the sum, summation today, so to speak, of of, a, of the other three episodes, which were intended to sort of build the argument um, around a problem that really touches all of us, because we all have identities. <laughs> And we all work within and live within a, a political order. So it's not like we can get outside of this. And uh, just quickly, we've, we've established certain things, I think, to get us to today's uh, topic, to today's wrap-up. We've established certain things. Uh, the, the first thing we've established is that identity politics is real. It's a real thing. It's, it's not something that's... Uh, just may, it's not a, a rhetorical device or, or a news blurb. It's real. Uh, the other thing we established is that it's not new. Remember, it's not new. Uh, identity and, and questions of negotiating political um, interest has been the history of politics from the beginning. It, it, that, that's not that's not a new uh, attempt. What what is new? is the degree to which identities have expanded or that what we call identities have expanded. We've moved more from class and economic and, and religious differences to whole subcultures of interest and difference um, that, that continue to, to grow um, the conversation the, and, and even the outrage as to what we mean by these things. It's another thing we established is that um, uh, politics, you can come at politics from all kinds of historical problems. What, it, what, what do we mean by it? Uh, is it natural to us? Is it a, a condition of the fall uh, uh, under theological terms? Or is it unnatural to us? And um, we, we've worked out of that middle sentence there that it's a necessary and divinely sanctioned activity given the fall Thirdly, we, we've come to the, uh, the realization that identity itself um, is, is, if you go at it on Christian terms, is spiritual. Uh, there's no way around um, that answer. That uh, the, uh, our, our identities are, are fundamentally theological in the sense that they're oriented toward God first by nature of creation. But then, of course, our fall into sin has affected uh, the way we understand ourselves. So uh, that, that's a, a third item we've established. 
Fourth, and we've established that God cares about questions of justice, uh, items of politics. If, if, if politics is ultimately about questions of justice, which it is in terms of regulating interest in justice, we have many passages in the scriptures that shows uh, God's heart for justice. We know, and we're not approaching this from the from the position that wealth and power are um, are, are untarnished here. <laughs> Quite the opposite. Uh, we live in a huge imbalance of wealth and power. The world has always struggled with this imbalance, and politics has always struggled with this imbalance. And we know the heart of God is always a question of justice. Uh, and and part of that when we look at these passages about politics and justice and order, as I've said in every lesson, that it doesn't matter what regime you're under, these, if the word of God is true, these, these imperatives stay the same. God cares about justice in any political order. It's not like one political order answers this problem. We, we, we made a point of establishing that. And finally, now kind of to where we are, uh, to pick up today as, as we lead into it, Uh, Just one more, that our citizenship, uh, the idea of citizenship uh, as a spiritual identity is uh, much more complicated than how we vote, where we live, um, what we we invest in in terms of what we think good citizenship looks like. It's much more complicated, and it's very hard to find a political mandate or mechanism that makes it look right according to Scripture. You're going to have a hard time digging through the scriptures and finding that mechanism or that mandate. And and that's where we we want to pick up today. Um, And I I want to start by framing us through some some passages of scripture, okay? Uh, That our identities, if if all those premises I just put in place work, and if they don't for the moment, just you can get at me later on it, that's fine. But just for the moment, if we can just move forward with it, if those premises work, uh, we're trying to find out what we mean by uh, these terms, identity, citizenship, justice, politics, right? We're, we're trying to figure out how to unpack, uh, unpack that gumbo, unpack that soup with its ingredients. And what do these things really mean, right? So let's start with just some exegesis. Um, if you're in the Christian faith, the turning point is, of course, our identity in Christ, which means our, going back to the point of spiritual identity, that spiritual identity, uh, then it, it's, it's, to use a big word, an ontological reality, a reality of being that cannot be undone. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, past tense, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in turn. Christ the first fruits when he comes, those who belong to him. Uh, a symmetry of identity in Christ that begins to reverse the identity in sin. Right? Um, how about Hebrews 2, uh, 8, through no, 8 through 9? Now in putting everything into subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, 
crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Um, we see through a glass darkly, said in other ways, in Hebrews and another part of Paul, Paul's letters. We, we, we have an inaugurated reality of our identity and our citizenship, but it's not complete yet. There's something um, that we still wait for and long for. How about First John 3, 2? Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Again, a tension between what is a present reality and what is still to come as a final, ultimate reality. And then uh, we did this a little bit last week. We we uh, we, we threw some 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 translation up there about between the new creation and the new has come, looking at those verbs as action that's completed in the past, but it's still ongoing in the present. A very unique uh, structure of language that Paul uses is just something that is done, but is still going on at the same time in, in Corinthians. And when we see this also in Ephesians, a new man has been created, a new person, man, man generically, of course, there. Or Galatians, I'm sorry, Colossians. Um, you have been raised with Christ. Set your heart on things above. That's sort of a whirlwind attempt at exegesis, but it's also in its proof texting uh, to a fault. <laughs> but it's also designed uh, to to get our minds wrapped around this problem of spiritual identity and the transformation of spiritual identity from fall to redemption. That if we say our identities are fundamentally spiritual and not a measure of what we're calling identity politics, which we'll get to in a moment, then what, we are, what we're saying is that a new reality has been inaugurated, uh, that we cannot escape as Christians, that no matter what's going on around us, no matter what the environment is telling us uh, in the news or in our, in our culture, in our educational structures, our etc., where we usually see these things played out day in and day out. A new reality has been inaugurated, the already, not yet. A tension between Christ's intervention in history, in real space and time, and Christ's return. And that rectangle, as we discussed last week, is where we live in this new identity, with two, with two parallel realities occurring at the same time for the Christian. Um, so am I, are we clear to this point kind of on what we're saying about this? Okay, because we're going to tease it out even more. If there, and, and what I suggested last week, and I want to, as our launching point again for this week, again in terms of uh, using those exegetical passages of this, this new reality, where, where we see this manifested, where do we see the politics of the kingdom in play is, is here. It's in the, in the church and in the word of God. Um, it's in the church. Now, of course, not the building, but power, PowerPoint lends itself to all kinds of fun and creativity. But not, I'm not talking about, I'm talking about the people of God as we live it out in word and sacrament. And as we try to grow in word and sacrament, that's where the kingdom politics and identity unfolds, right? Which 
if we're on track with our with our assumptions and our understanding will put us at odds with the world it will put us at odds with the culture because what we're calling identity politics and all of its historical manifestation and really I kind of just want to call it politics at this point you know it's not in sync always with our rectangle here or with what's going on in the word in the sacrament in fact it can be found at odds well today and what we're I'd like to get at then here's some key words that jump out as we explore this further today what I want to get at is what does this mean in light of the gospel sort of the final word that that overused but beautiful word that we hear all the time to the point of numbness but yet when it does break through it, it, it's so enlightening uh, and so warm and, and, and powerful to us. What does it mean in light of the good news of Christ? Key words to keep in mind when it comes to Christian identity from those passages we just read. First fruits, uh, an agricultural metaphor for something greater to come. The first blooms and of a harvest. Uh, citizenship in heaven. New creation. Have been crucified. We have been crucified with Christ. We have been raised with Christ. Um, if, if the passages you know, are a bit thick, just keep these key words in mind because they're lifted right out of, out of these, these passages. Okay? So, any questions or clarifications to this point? Yes, sir. Mark? Uh, uh, I don't know how much the question is. You talk about the, uh, a Christian identity being a spiritual identity as yeah. opposed to, say, a, a political identity yeah. or something. And the, where you see the... That, and I, 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 I agree with that, but for good or ill, yeah. the, I think that a Christian identity becomes a political yeah. identity, not necessarily from the from the instigation of the Christian, yeah. but the culture looking at the Christian, yeah. identifying yeah. Christians, and you are now the yeah. identity yeah. on you. That, that's, a, that's a great... Point. Translation. I mean, it may, maybe by the time we knock this thing out, if we could let it flo- that question float and see if we have anything clarity on that, because you're on it. I mean, the problem is we are in the we have a dual citizenship. We have a dual identity right now. It's the already we are in Christ, but we still live in the the middle, and that means. And what that means is, uh, you're going to be judged by that identity by the world. And the way you make decisions, there's no way around it. And and let, let me, can I let it float? Because this, you got my wheels turning on this. And um, so, with these key words in mind, let, let's think about the, a few things. Christ has inaugurated a spiritual transformation and continues to trans- transform our essential spiritual nature, in spite of how we understand or experience our accidental qualities. And my little thing, cartoon, whatever that is, drawing is about what I would call accidental qualities, education, race, um, uh, what does that say? Sexuality, class, age, language, all the things we would call um, either, either we're born with it or we choose to identify with it. We choose to appropriate it somehow as who we are. 
okay? Those are not essential qualities according to Scripture. Essential qualities according to Scripture are our spiritual nature, our relationship both through creation and redemption with God. That is essentialism. If there is a great turn of modernity, and if there is a great turn in our own culture, it's confusing accidental qualities with essential qualities. And to Mark, we all do it. <laughs> we all do it. We can't get outside of it because of our fallen nature. We do this even out of habit sometimes, right? We've seen conservative people do it, especially really in the 20th century. There was a big surge in this with identifying as Christian uh, or identifying with a certain kind of political, our, our Christian nature with a certain kind of political group, etc. You know, we, we saw it in the last century uh, with the social gospel movement in the 19th century, in the early 20th century. It happens, but it also happens across the spectrum. And I'm going to tease this out more because once these accidental qualities, either by birth or choice, once they take over as the starting point for organizing reality, I, I, I would urge that reality itself becomes distorted. And we start to look for our hope somewhere else. So the essential, two, two words, which, by the way, aren't... aren't uh, necessarily words out of scripture those are words more from hellenistic philosophy than scripture but they help us they help us what is essential to our nature what is accidental to our nature and what happens when we confuse those two categories in light of the passages we just read and okay uh, reiterate in, in christ a new order of reality has broken into the present order of reality this chart i won't let go away um <laughs> but it, it it's it this we can't lose sight of this uh that a different understanding of being has been brought to us with jesus christ of how we are in our nature and frankly I think it's so amazing and so transformative and so beyond uh, what we see and experience every day that we need stuff like church. We need to constantly be going back to the well and drinking from it to understand what this breaking into means. Because in the, in the warp and woof, as the Scots say, of everyday life, it, it, we, we forget it sometimes or we, we don't. Keep, it's not in front of us all the time. That what it means that a new order of reality. So we want to take these two together. The essential and the accidental. And the confusion of those things. And the inauguration of a new reality. A new order of reality. Through the Christian faith. And, and I actually correct myself. Through the, through the life, death, and work of resurrection of Christ. Not the Christian faith. I would correct myself. Now. With those two ideas in mind, okay, with those two ideas in mind, let's, let's meditate on this a moment because before we look at our cartoon little Karl Marx there, let's go back here because I know we all come to church to talk about Karl Marx. That I said very early on in this lesson, uh, in this series, that if you really want to find a historical transformative point, a point at which the accidents and the essence get flipped 
It's in the mid-19th century with the, the, the thought of a very brilliant man in his own way, Karl Marx. Okay, and in this line in particular, the abolition of religion as the illusory happiness of the people is the demand of their real happiness. Um, to call on them to give up their illusions about their condition is to call on them to give up a condition that requires illusions. Um, his arguments are much more complicated, and I'm not, you know, the, the professor in me said, well, we've got to do more justice to that and make sure we understand. But it's enough, I think, to move forward. That Marx is a materialist, and Marx makes a very complicated but um, easily accessible case that our primary condition is not essential, it's accidental. It's what we're born into and the choices we make, and then how society as a whole governs those and economics in particular okay I don't it's not a stretch of, of, of intellect or imagination to know or, or understand that it's with this a new order a, a very competitive order of reality is visited upon us in the West with the Christian against over and against the Christian message okay and it's precisely there that I think the, the gospel uh, holds. If the gospel is, is an accurate description of an answer to the human condition, then Karl Marx, as well as um, cultural, uh, sorry about that, cultural derivatives of Marxism, is wrong. It's fundamentally wrong. Uh, I'll repeat. If the gospel is accurate, if it's true, as we've gathered here to affirm today, if it answers who we are and our identities and what we need, then what Karl Marx has said about religion as an illusion and about materialism being the, the starting point of reality, he, it, it's wrong. It's not accurate. Christianity is not an illusory happiness or a false consciousness. That's another word he uses. Numbing our ability to see our real need and our real condition. Rather, Christianity exposes our real need and at the same time frustrates any and all political, economic, and social efforts to correct that need apart from Christ. It's the great dividing line between two world systems. Okay? Um, the history, of course, of Marx's legacy is very complicated. But, in the 20th century especially, but... Um, if you put aside po the political systems and utopianism that he, that he put in place, that starting point of identity as your circumstances or your choices and then the systems around us that keep us in place, so to speak, and doesn't allow for equality or justice to manifest, if you look at that, that has a very important feed into what we're calling identity politics. It doesn't have to be... Um, a revolution of uh, of the order of, of 1917 or, or or 46 in China. It doesn't have to be a revolution of that order for us to understand that you're looking at two competing starting points of reality. Which I will add can creep into across the spectrum of political loyalties, which I hope we'll see in a moment. 
if I'm right, and I am, okay, if I'm right, um, sorry, <laughs> if I'm right, our essential spiritual condition, our essential spiritual condition, in, as born in sin, born in the flesh, redeemed through Christ, that essential spiritual condition is as real as our accidental qualities of birth, circumstance, and choice. And I debated, do I say as real or more real here? And I think it's as real because Christ, it, there's nothing in Christianity that says what we're born into, our circumstances, and our choices don't matter. Nothing. God cares about that justice. He cares about the inequities of the, word, of the world. And it's all over Scripture. We ignore it to our peril. But our essential nature is as real as that and possibly even um, uh, the most important measure of, of overcoming accidents of birth and circumstance and choice. Um, we can't help many of these things and we all make bad choices. I didn't get a lot of nods on that. We all make bad choices. So, anyway. Uh, so our essential nature matters so much so that and this is what I want us to pay attention to. If we elevate accidental qualities, birth, circumstances and choice or identity choices. My truth. You ever heard that expression or, you know, um, I identify as this now a tree or whatever to the level. If we if we elevate those kind of qualities or choices to moral imperatives we risk distorting the gospel. We risk distorting the gospel. And, and to be clear about this, and I'm gonna, this is where I wanted the question to float, I think if we come back to that point, um, just, if I can just be crass about it, conservatives are just as guilty of this as liberals are guilty of this, of elevating some... T- in other words, you could plug in the blank there, uh, white supremacy as easily as you can, woke. You follow me? You can, you can plug in all kinds of fill in the blank there in terms of how culturally and historically we have elevated identity or choice issues to the level of moral imperatives. And in turn, we've lost the hope of the gospel in trying to communicate truth. So with that in mind, and 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 basically, uh, you know, I'm I'm challenging Karl Marx to a throwdown, and he's dead, so that even better, right? Because um, he'd probably win. He's German, and he's he's angry. <laughs> and, um, uh, but I, I'm I'm suggesting that's the dividing line. I I actually thought of oops, um, Karl Marx versus Groucho Marx. Politics is the art of looking for trouble, finding it everywhere, diagnosing it incorrectly, and applying the wrong remedies. Thank you. So anyway, I had to put that in there when I found it. I, it, it so, okay. <laughs> okay. All right. Here I want to I want to kind of try to get us to a closing point because they're not going to let me teach anymore after this. And so, <laughs> identity politics longs for the perfection of freedom and equality. It longs for freedom and equality to coexist peacefully in the present age. It longs for a unity of those two desires. We want to be free and we want to be equal in our freedom. Think about it. 
just chew on it for a minute. It will not happen. Freedom and equality cannot coexist peacefully in the present age. We cannot be perfectly free and perfectly equal because the achievement of one will always erode the other. Just think about it for a moment because it may be the most important dividing line in this modern moment we're living in, this moment of trying to discern where liberal democracies are going, but also how we fit in as Christians in liberal democracies. If you allow your children to behave with perfect freedom, is everything going to come out equal? (laughs) No, it's a quick no, right? Somebody's going to win every time and somebody's going to lose every time on the plane of equality. If you enforce equality from the top, what happens to their freedom? It goes away. They can't exist together. And the great project of liberalism, lowercase l, the last 300 years, has been trying to figure out how to negotiate those two things. As the old regime collapsed in the 18th century and the new regimes came into place that we live under one of those, uh, what we saw and what we experienced is the great attempt to get these two things in harmony. Identity politics is simply one more step in that effort of trying to harmonize two unharmonizable, write that down, Craig, I think I just made up a word, unharmonizable things, (laughs) freedom and equality. You're not going to be able to do it. In fact, history betrays us that if you try to do it, and attempts to do it have ended in one being sacrificed for the other. And there, uh, the French Revolution, the Russian Revolution, and the Chinese Revolution uh, stand out to me as, as just uh, perfect examples of what happens when you try to, from the top, either force people to be free, you get the guillotine, right? Oh, you're not on board with that? Well, we got to get rid of you. Right. Or you're going to get uh, some expression of Marxism in in an attempt to to gain equality. Does that make sense? what What I'm suggesting. And as Christians, we have to take that seriously. As citizens, we have to take it seriously. But as Christians, we have to take it seriously. Also, why? Why, why do we have to take seriously that identity politics longs for freedom and equality and that it's never going to be established? Because what manifests out of it is a kind of moral outrage, a kind of moral dislocation of the self and of your group, your tribe, right? The moral outrage that characterizes so much of identity politics is a symptom of the inability of freedom and equality to achieve Peaceful coexistence and cooperation. Jason, Sir? Aren't we seeing it all come to blows right now in Hong Kong? Yeah, I almost put an image of that up there. The, the guy holding up a sign, something to the effect of freedom. I almost put an image. Yeah, absolutely. That's, it plays, it's playing out on the global stage right now. 
Why, why do we have to internalize this problem to some level? Because according to the gospel, moral outrage without the object and end of Christ is legalistic. It's a version of trying to find hope and righteousness apart from that new order of reality that Christ has inaugurated. Only in the life, death, work, and resurrection of Christ do freedom and equality meet. It's the only place in history and in eternity we have found it. We can find it. That's why we have to take seriously the problem, the moral outrage, because the, the moral answer, the moral answer is the gospel. It's the only answer. So, does spiritual identity make any difference for political and social realities? Is there a proper response to identity politics in light of uh, Christian identity? I, I, there's no way I can answer this question in four classes or 400 classes. With, and if I tried to answer it with certainty, I would encourage you to walk out because it means I've just, you know, I'm, pr I'm trying to prop something up that, that, that can't really be supported. Um, but I do think there's ways to get at it, maybe with a, a little less certainty. And that is, if we frame, if we frame those questions of, of, of what difference does it make, and the proper response, if we frame them in terms of the burden of freedom and the freedom of Christianity. I mean, what has liberalism given us? L lowercase l, political liberalism, last four, three hundred years or so. It's given us the burden of freedom. We have to make choices, in an order of, in a hierarchy of choices. Right? And we have to do it imperfectly. We, we can't get a one-to-one -one answer out of Scripture every time, if ever. Because Scripture is concerned primarily about the new order of reality, that new citizenship. And, and I would suggest this. In exercising our political freedom, we have to make imperfect choices between imperfect alternatives shaped by sin and subject to the fall. Even, even as believers we still have to make choices in that order of reality. And the further we move from this understanding of reality, the more we will look to politics, interests, and identity for our security. It will be the only outlet we have. This side of paradise, this side of, of, of redemption. Um, I, let, let me read this quickly for, in closing from uh, a guy, uh, a writer, um, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, a great writer of the late 20th century who experienced the, the trauma of the gulags and then uh, subsequently spent most of his life trying to make sense. That he converted to Christianity in the gulags in Russia uh, in the 1950s and then spent most of his literary career trying to, to make sense of this. What, what he understood... He understood that, I think, a nice summary of what, we're, what I'm trying to say here about the gospel um, and identity and politics and citizenship. Here, here's a quote. A society based on the letter of the law and never reaching any higher fails to take full advantage of the full range of human possibilities. The letter of the law is too cold and formal to have a beneficial influence on society. Whenever the tissue of life is woven of legalistic relationships, 
this creates an atmosphere of spiritual mediocrity that paralyzes our noblest impulses. And it will and it will be simply impossible to bear up to the trials of this threatening century, the 20th century, with nothing but the support of a legalistic structure. Well, he he really articulately gets at what I'm trying to suggest, that if our identities can only be negotiated through political mechanisms, we are thrown into the law in a harsh, cold, antiseptic way. And the law will never drive us to love. The law will never drive us to love one another. Something else has to take... Being told we have to hurry. The law will, will only drive us and can only drive us toward legalistic negotiation and contract with one another. Love has to come from somewhere else. It has to reshape our identities at that level first before we can begin to talk about a better culture, a better world, um, uh, a, more, a more sensible way to live together. And in that sense, I think the Christian message retains and it will continue to retain. It's our only hope. Thank you. So that's it. Any questions or, or um, considerations? Yes, sir. Uh, you know, if we're all after the same thing, you had said, but we're just coming at it from a different paradigm, do you think maybe there's a big opportunity for the Holy Spirit to fill other people and for convert? Yeah, I'm never going to say there's not an opportunity for the Holy Spirit. But yeah, I mean, we're living in a peculiar cultural moment, aren't we? Yeah. We really are. And I, this this whole series for me has come out of years of trying to teach Western thought to 18 to 22 year olds. I mean, you know, and, and what, where are the real issues? Um, and it does seem to me that one of the one of the things we have to do is think about when we when we talk to people what these ideas what what are the peculiar circumstances that we're living in but what's the peculiar message of the gospel as it speaks to those circumstances and the 21st century is presenting us with some new realities in our in our democracy yeah do you think we are in current peculiar circumstances or does every generation say yeah. the same thing great great question um and i struggle with that um, even if every generation says the same thing, I don't know that we don't have the privilege of saying we're there too, right? But I really appreciate what you're, what you're saying. I, I, I will put it this way. Liberal democracy depend, and, and the, the whole American project in particular, it, it has depended upon a certain understanding of human nature as essential that there's this essential human nature. All men, all people are created equal. That's a metaphysical claim about our essential nature. Now, there's no deep theology there, but as Christians, we, we wouldn't argue with it. <laughs> what I would say is a little different is that for, for most generations, we have lived with that essentialism intact, that there is a human nature and politics share and rights share a relationship with that nature. I think what may be unique about where we are now is we're very much in conflict over whether there even is such a thing as an essential human nature. 
And that to me could be an interesting difference because without starting from an essential human nature, you can't get to the American political project. And I don't say that to sound scary. I just say it or or, or anything. Yeah. So, but to your point, every generation's had to cross their own Rubicons. Well, I'm not arguing that we're not. Um, (laughs) But what you just said, I mean, if you read John Adams or any of the founding fathers, they say exactly what you just said. Yeah. Without the basis of some sort of innate righteousness exactly in humanity it won't work exactly it won't work and and as christians i think we have the the and i know this is a scandal and an offense but i think we have the right answer to what that innate righteousness is and where it comes from um and uh, yes sir i'm seeing a nexus and i want you to tell me if you see any validity with it it seems that this generation when the okay in previous generations we have ideas and they are disassociated with us and we present them, we posit them under the yeah. context that this is yeah. in the realm of possibility. Yeah. Let's discuss it. Yeah. In today's generation, that that concept that's being theorized yeah. is a part of one's identity. Yeah. So if you take I see. any swipe at that identity... Yeah. You've attacked them personally, and they have right. full reign to come back. You're, you're making you're making a great point, and it's sort of the conversation we were just having. If you lose that objective essentialism, um, then there's no way politics isn't personal. <laughs> there's no way around it. Um, and of course, as, again, I'm, I'm just trying to orient as to why we're here at church and why we, as Christians, we. We cannot allow that to happen to us when people take swipes at us. When people take swipes at belief, we have to understand, I think, what Solson Easton's trying to tell us. If people are coming at you that way, they're coming out under a legalistic understanding of what human relationships are. And for all the use of the word love, it's frankly misuse. It's an absolute distortion of what love is. I'm convinced that may be one of the problems, is that we use that word in such a way as to, claim, as to claim the moral high ground. But in fact, what we're saying is we want you to be negotiated through the law, whether it's whatever that law looks like. Yeah. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.